Hey dorks, in this episode of the Chatcast, we'll be discussing the documentary I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth vs. Michelle Carter. We will be openly discussing suicide and suicide-related topics. So if this is something that's sensitive for you or you feel in a fragile state in any way, we recommend you skip this episode and maybe check out one of our other episodes. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. In Spanish, it's 1-888-628-9454. For the deaf and hard of hearing, it's 1-800-799-4889. Or the crisis text line by texting HOME to 741741. Although I've seen some scripts, I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done the DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Dorkness Chatcast. I am your host, Brad Gullickson, the mouth dork, and joining me today is... Lisa Gullickson, the wife dork. South by Southwest may have been weeks ago, but it is still going strong here on the podcast. Today, we are bringing you a conversation with documentarian Aaron Lee Carr and Esquire reporter Jesse Barron as they discuss... The upcoming HBO documentary, I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. This is a really interesting dynamic conversation to have because we have a filmmaker, right? And then we also have one of the talking heads. One of her sup- subjects. Yeah, super, who's super involved in the film. Not only that, but the writer whose early work on this case inspired her just as much as anything else. The documentary is about the case against Michelle Carter, who was um, 17 years old and accused of texting her boyfriend to suicide with words. Yeah, I vaguely remember this case from the news. And I remember thinking, uh, you know, what, how bizarre... Uh, concept that was, but also remembering that uh, how how Michelle Carter was painted as this witch like figure and this this very villainous figure uh, it, within the media within the context of the media. Well, the main evidence that they had to create this case was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of texts between these two teens. And the cherry picking of these texts make her sound so intensely heartless and brutal and paint Conrad Roy, her boyfriend, as a victim. But as the documentary presents and as Jesse Barron presented in Esquire, there was so much more to this case and so much more to this idea of can you be responsible for the manslaughter of another person when you are not present and what you are presenting is words and ideas. 
Yeah, it's a fascinating subject that they cover over the course of two episodes that will air on HBO sometime in the summer. Uh, the release date hasn't officially been announced. I, you know, you're talking about all those texts and all that information. As a filmmaker, I can't imagine compiling all of this information into one narrative. And that's where we start our conversation off in this episode. Right. The way they present this case is extremely compelling, and there are twists and turns to this story that you can't anticipate. But then when you think about paralleling the building a case next to building a documentary, it is a mind boggle. Yeah, staggering, staggering. Yeah. On that note, let's just jump right into this chat. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Doing well, Jesse. Thank you for joining us as well. Really appreciate it. Uh, so we just got done watching the movie ourselves. Um, and man, there is so much information and so much data to sift through. How I guess like just from formulating your documentary narrative, how do you even begin to sift through that information? I think you started the beginning start the beginning of the story and think about what I think that there was a clear dividing line of, you know, this is, uh, this is what the prosecution was telling us. And then this is what the defense was. And so, uh, thinking about the film and structuring that way and having audiences, you know, actively sort of engage in the investigation and learn things as we learn things as filmmakers and journalists, I think felt important to me and something that I'm, I'm talking about So, uh, you know, you were there pretty much, you were there from the beginning of the trial. Right. So when did you know that this was going to be your next documentary? Like, when did you first hear about this case? And when did you know, yeah, I have to cover this? So I saw it in a Washington Post article in 2015, and I have a longstanding relationship with HBO, and we like we love things that cover technology and crime. This really felt that the injury, that it, Excuse me, it really was at the intersection of those two sort of those two ideas and concepts. And so it just felt like a, a natural case to make a doc about. But there's a lot of competition for the story. And like people like you, you call it sort of the, 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 the like everyone was so weird on the first day of the, the trial. Like you had to get there's a certain number of press badges. I just remember like I just like was like sweating. As it starts, and Jesse, you can talk. It just was like awkward. I remember snapping at someone like viciously in line outside the courtroom because there were people like Aaron who'd been there since the beginning, and so I knew that Aaron was making a movie, and I was there for Esquire, kind of a little after Aaron, but pretty early. So I already knew Aaron was like my competitor, mm -hmm. like, and that's bad enough, you know, because like I know her films and her deal, and I was like, okay. Then the trial starts, and it's like a flood of like every affiliate station like helicopters you know like international journalists all these tv people and there's still only the same number of press events that yeah. there's been mm. and I, so we're all waiting in line outside, outside the courtroom and i um 
was was cut in line by some like Ari East affiliate TV journalist. And I just remember like, you know, wheeling around and snapping, we've been here since December. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and taking his badge. It really was like that. And so, and for your sort of audience, like, I, our camera was the pool camera, and mm-hmm. so we had to figure out, basically, what is a way for us to shoot this that we could give it to the pool, like, basically to all the affiliates. And so, it was my cinematographer, me, and my co-producer, and the first day, it wasn't reeling back. It was opening statements, and it wasn't going back to, basically, to, like, the press room, and people lost their minds. <laughs> and they're like, oh, these HBO people, they don't know what they're doing. Basically, like, it was a converter box that we didn't get, and we had the wrong extension cord. And so I, like, turned to a guy. It wasn't working. And I was like, what is the first thing you would do to solve this mistake? And he ended up helping me. He could have just been like, fuck you. I want to be the, like, the camera person. Um, but he ended up helping me. And so the next day, I came with, like, apology donuts. And I was like, this won't happen again. <laughs> How do you think this sense of competition in the media affects the actual justice in this case for the people involved and and how it would influence the judge and what his opinion is going to be? I mean, hopefully it doesn't influence the judge at all because he needs to be a judge, which he is. And he was very clear that, like, he allowed cameras in it, but he never did an interview. He never directed his inquiry towards them. We were allowed one camera move, but he was like, that's it. Um, he, he ran it a very tight and orderly courtroom. I felt um, I felt like he had the case at heart and was really sort of invested in thinking about it on a non-emotional way. Um, in terms of how the competition affected the film, in fact, no, effect of the story was your question. Yeah. yeah. It turned the characters into celebrities. Right. So you were watching in real time as this family, the Roy family, who were salvage boat operators in a small town in a harbor in southern Massachusetts, were suddenly in demand media figures. And that changed them and changed their lives. And part of the story that Aaron's film captures is that process, is from the... Uh, you know, shots where sort of like these meta shots where like Aaron and her crew are like shooting the scrum or like shooting the chase, and then the the the, the on camera interviews with the family with the mother. That's sort of the end result of that. Um, Which is so. I mean, literally in my life, I've done 140 40 interviews on camera. I just did sex abuse and gymnastics. One of the most painful of her life was interviewing Lynn Roy. Uh, because she, like, you know, she sort of, like, didn't want to be there. Um, sure. And you're talking about the death of her son in a way and talking about the culpability of it. And just the whole room was just, I don't know, there was sadness in just every single atom of that room. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm always impressed when family members can come out of a situation like this and put themselves before cameras like that. Uh, now on Conrad's family, you seem to have lots of access, but with Michelle's family and with Michelle herself, less so, but how do you go about showing her point of view of the story? I mean, what was, what was your tactic in doing that? You had access to her lawyer, her doctor. I mean, I, I showed, so Michelle, you know, she's the one one of the only ways she communicated and what she felt comfortable was through your text messages. Yeah. But that was a window into who, 
what she thought and what how she felt and like you know I truly believe and I know it's a convenient thing for me to say but like I truly believe that like that showed more of her than you know a weird on camera where she's not allowed to talk about much where she's under sort of like her appeal like you know this was an examination of the thoughts she had in real time um and, and I and it, it, she felt clearer to me I mean, that we had that conversation after watching the movie is we said we're actually thankful that Michelle isn't on camera for the documentary. Good for you to say that. <laughs> 18,000 times to camera. <laughs> well, I, I, how about, you know, you guys were there at the beginning, but for both of you, how did your opinion alter over the course of the entire trial and I guess did it then alter over the course of assembling the footage well I can talk about my opinion Aaron can talk about her footage the uh, um I, I think for me the big uh realization was that um the story that was being advanced in court was not entirely true um, and so I was initially interested in the story as like, uh, you know, about this relationship and about, you know, Conrad and this sort of kid who had these, uh, you know, this totally other, uh, world that he would enter in this relationship with Michelle, um, and how that played out and what it meant. But the more that I read the text and Aaron's right, that it's really all in the text, the more it became obvious that for Michelle, the story was about a fantasy that did not have an object and that Conrad, like the, the uh, intensity that she projected on him was not commensurate with him and with their relationship, but there was another story in her mind that predated him. And the conclusion I come to in the article that I talk about in the film is that it had more to do with this girl she was in love with, a girl named Alice, than it did with Conrad. But that for me was the big turn as a reporter and then, you know, later as a participant in Aaron's movie. Um, is, is trying to understand, it, it turns the question away from why did Michelle Carter do this and toward what did Michelle Carter think she was doing. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about, like, now you've seen um, the pro prosecution cherry-picking what parts of Michelle's text they're going to share so that they create this, you know, very unsympathetic narrative. How did that affect your considerations when assembling the film and and presenting the other side of the story? I think that it, it, it really... I just saw how the criminal justice system works. Mm. In that there's basically... A prosecutor has a thesis, and they're going to they're gonna try like hell to get that thesis to fit... Basically, to get all of the, the sort of the people that are um, that are witnesses to fit that narrative, and it's almost like a, um, a square peg in a round hole. Like there, the prosecution uh, alleged that Michelle was this attention-grabbing, crazy sociopath, did not care about anyone, and basically Conrad was this like easy mark. And like anybody who sits who knows anything about that case. That's not true, and that's unfair. And I think it, I, I, you know, I think that they 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 were very uh, disciplined, amazing. You know, they're they're. I think inherently this is not a prosecutorial misconduct story. I think they tried their best, but like I really think that they they really tried to fit that narrative um, when the, the truth did not exist in the way. I mean, I, I'm critical of everyone in the story, you know, including myself. 
It's it's hard not to be. It's hard not to be. What about um you you talked in the beginning of the interview about how this could act as kind of we are now the jury to this trial. But then at the end of the documentary, you included these on the street interviews in diners and and wherever of who would be presumably her jury of her peers. And they seem, in my opinion, still feeling like she is culpable for the death of Conrad. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's what I, like, I would go out and talk to people about it. And everyone just had a lot of, one, misinformation, and two, a lot of anger. And I think it really changed, basically, like, the town. Like, they felt like they were swept up into this moment. But then last night, in, we were in a like, our premiere... And I wanted to use the, I wanted to use the sort of the moment and conduct a straw poll. And I was like, you know, who believe, who here believes oh, that murder, uh, you know, should be found guilty. And I think it was a 165 person theater. Three people raised their hands. Mm. Right. Mm. Mm. That, that says it all right there, I guess. I think, you know, some people may have not been participating because I was like, you know, a, like a loud short woman yelling at them with a microphone. <laughs> But, you know, that's just, I, I think that the, I think that that's really interesting. And now whenever we screen it, I sort of want to do that. I'm going to gauge and like write it down and figure out like, how are people really feeling about this? So right. Like an example of something that like the culture does to women a lot, which is like, they like, um, they hate you and beat you up and then they can only like you after they've already done this thing to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now that Michelle, right. And now that Michelle has been like, kind of put through the ringer of the culture now it's sort of like safer to like her it's it's also my guess that so the the film used to end you know that she is out she has a state of execution she gets this white girl privilege where she gets to stay at home pending Mm. her appeal which nobody very rarely of color gets by the way right so and there's this tremendous there's this anger that happened so i think had the film stayed that way because she was ultimately she just had to uh surrender to prison um, I think people, I think there would have been more people raising their hands to your point, Jesse, that we only love them after they're gone. And it's just like, it's, it's, you know, it's now it's like, oh, I feel bad. She's actually, she's actually serving time. Hmm. Brad, just to jump in, we have time for about one more question. Uh, okay. One more question. Um, I, I guess I want to just go back to, you know, I, I'm obsessed with the editing of this documentary and formulating your narrative over the course of two parts, basically. So process-wise, you know, you go back to the beginning in, when you start, but now that you have all of it, when did you know you you had a narrative to to form? Like, how how did you form that narrative process-wise? I mean, I really have to uh, to raise my cap to editor Andrew Kaufman, who edited my first film and my second film. Um, He is somebody that really inherently understands making you feel one way and then subverting it and making you feel another way. And so, yes, like I'm a a director and I interview people and I I get the story, but like I have to tell you it's in large part to this uh, this amazing, uh, you know, editor that I work with that really plays with your emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, like a diabolical like rolling out of information. Like that the great speech thing. That was his cut. Basically, we're like in this second, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it, it cuts to this drink bleach, and you're just like, oh my god! Like the audience, is just like, oh god! Like they recoiled, and it's like that was 
not my idea. That was Andrew's idea. Mm. Well, so good. Well, put me if you if you're taking a poll, put me in the not guilty column. I am so I was like finished this documentary so full of rage and frustration. <laughs> Yeah, that makes two of us. Uh, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. You Congratulations. 40 minutes in our brains. Yes. I really appreciate it. You really had great questions, and I, I think that I, I hope it, to, it can spark some debate. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Enjoy the rest of uh, South By. Taco time. Bye. Yeah, and there you have it. Taco time. Taco time. Um, what an awesome and totally Texas South by Southwest way to end that interview. Uh, you know, what was interesting to me about this conversation was how they had a different ending to this movie, but the case kept changing the course of the narrative. And this could have presented Michelle Carter in one totally different way, if not for that last bit of information that comes out at the end of the documentary, which we talked about a little bit on this con on, on the interview. But since our, our, uh, our listeners have not had access to this doc yet, I guess we shouldn't spoil any further, but fascinating. I know for me as a viewer, things didn't turn out the way that I expected. Or and necessarily wanted. And yeah, it, and it's bizarre. I feel like we literally, to do this, this is a little peek behind the curtain, people. We literally paused the second episode of the case against Adnan Syed, another HBO documentary, to do this intro and outro. And I find myself having a more complicating relationship with true crime material, yeah. especially considering when it deals with... Uh, teens and young adults and and people who do not have developed brains and just having all of their personal life just poured out there like i think that this documentary this conversation about the power of words and the power of text and how um people who are susceptible to suicide are so influenced by ideas they're already so fragile but at the same time, I'm like, I feel weird hearing these people's texts, these kids' texts. She was a minor, 17 years old. We've talked about this on our other In the Mouth of Dorkness series, The Weekend Dorks, The Review Casts. True crime is an entertainment boom. Like, in the last few years... And, and a lot of it has to do with the serial podcast and the case against Adnan Saeed. It has become this massive moneymaker for entertainment avenues. And so places like HBO and Netflix have been scooping up these stories because they are incredibly compelling. And I do have this bizarre relationship with them because I am fascinated by these stories. I am appalled by these stories. They get my ire up. They make me mad as hell. They make me want to get proactive. I think the important thing is when you watch a story like this, when you watch a story like the case against Adnan Sayed, you interact with the emotion it causes in you. You need to do something about what you see out there in the world. And if you are appalled by a system, you need to act out against it. Speak truth to power. You need to continue the conversations that these filmmakers are starting. Absolutely. As particularly when we're looking at our justice system that is in so many ways 
so flawed and so human and so easily swain. Yes, yes, yeah. And one of the most fascinating aspects of this particular case is how they decided, the defense attorney, to forego the right to be tried by a juror. Exactly. So, so it comes down to one man, one judge. Yeah. And you think like that makes sense to me. Like when they, when they make that case, yeah, that makes sense. I don't, I don't trust 12 people <laughs> right. to, 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 to sway over me. And this guy's, he's a judge. He knows the law. He's going to be fairer than, you know, 12 bumbling simpletons in a courtroom, <laughs> but maybe not. Maybe I not. I don't know. Spoilers. Ooh. Whatever the case may be, this documentary right here is incredibly compelling and absolutely relevant. And the way it reveals how technology is changing law. And actually, law can't even speak to the technology we have. You know, when this case went before the judge, there was no precedent for 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 texting a a death. But there is in our culture this ongoing conversation of toxicity and toxicity on Twitter, toxicity between kids, online bullying, that kind of thing. And I think that we need to define as a nation that has freedom of speech and freedom of ideas is words is ideas convictable is it is it legally wrong or is it just morally wrong yeah well we decide that as a nation through the laws oh, gross. and good luck to us gross 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 <laughs> anyway i you know we could talk about this film all day long and when it does come back in the summer when everyone is finally able to watch this movie, we should talk about it with our other dorks, Brian, Darren, Billy, on our Weekend Dork in the Mouth of Dorkness episodes. Absolutely. I, I really want to get their perspectives on this case same, in particular. Same, same, Brian and Darren. So for now, we're going to put a button on this topic. And next week, we are leaving South by Southwest, and we're going to another film festival, the Lost Weekend Film Festival Yay! at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia. This is the 11th film festival run by programmer Andy Geyerson. And he was so considerate and thoughtful that when he nabbed Emilio Estevez writer, director, star, producer of The Public for Lost Weekend 11, he convinced Emilio to come on our podcast and chat about his new movie. I can hardly believe it. I mean... And I was there. Super, super, super surreal. I got Very lost bizarre. in his eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're so deep and bla baby blue. Baby so, blue eyes. return to us next week. We're going to talk about The Public. We're going to talk about The Public with Emilio Estevez, and we're going to have a good time. Yeah. All right, Lisa, where can our listeners find you online? I'm at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me at MouthDork on all social medias. Be sure to follow the podcast at ItModcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And follow our other dorks. Billy Das will be returning next week with Emilio Estevez. He's almost as good a git. And you can find him at WB Das on Twitter. Follow Darren Smith at the Disco Dork. Follow Brian Young at the Turtle Dork. They're all doing cool things too. Yeah. 
But Darren and Brian, they missed out on that Emilio. Yeah, they did. I'll let them shake the hand that shook the hand of Emilio. (laughs) I have washed it several times because I'm not gross. Oh, I have not bathed at all since then. Gross. On that note. Until next time, listeners, take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 